Please be seated. I invite you to Isaiah 7. And the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. We will be looking at our Savior and at what is really a birth announcement here in chapter 9, but starting at chapter 7. Today, as some of you might know, is winter solstice at about noon. Uh, For we who are here in the northern hemisphere, the earth will be positioned at the greatest angular distance from the sun, and this means that today we will receive the shortest amount of daylight on our annual journey around the sun. Winter solstice has been ritually observed in a multitude of cultures around the world from ancient times. If you would just research and look at some of these festivals and rituals, it's mind-numbing how many, how varied. And yet, as you look at it, many of these observances emphasize light in some way, as you might expect at a time of darkness. We might think of the Swedish celebration of St. Lucia in which The girls wear a crown of candles on their head, and the boys carry around a a candle as well in ritual celebration. I understand that there was a time when the candles were real and were burning, and why they put that on the girls' heads and not the boys, I don't know, but they've gone to batteries, I understand, these days for obvious reasons. It might be dangerous to be a Swedish girl in the past on St. Lucia's Day. But the tradition that we have here of burning Christmas lights at a time of year such as this is called the darkness of midwinter, and we burn these lights. It's really part of this universal theme of warding off the darkness of this time. Most Americans probably never think beyond the simple festiveness or the hominess of stringing lights. But as candles are burned in windows and lights are strung on trees and along roof lines, these lights shine as an unwitting expression of defiant hope that the darkness will not prevail. This is all a faint echo, I think, really, of the moral paradigm that God himself established on the first day of creation. Out of the darkness, a voice calls, let there be light. And God's word generates physical light in that moment, but also establishes a moral paradigm which the Apostle John picks up on and captures when he says in his first epistle, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He clearly doesn't mean that God is physical light. Physical light is distinctive from God the Creator, but there's a moral paradigm there. God is light, and in him is no darkness of sin at all. And throughout the Scriptures, light serves as a symbol of God's presence, of God's truth, of the purity of God's ways, and of the glory of God's greatness in contrast to the darkness of evil. And John, particularly in his gospel and in his epistles, pick up on this theme. This theme of God's light conquering moral darkness finds its essence in Jesus. You remember, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, the light which is life itself, Jesus Christ. And indeed, we think of it, Often at this year, time of year, but on the day of Jesus' birth, shepherds watched their flocks by night 
Luke doesn't have any throwaway phrases here. It's important, I think, to, to stress that it was by night that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord, Lord shone round about them, piercing the darkness. So at Jesus' first advent, the night sky, pierced with this brilliant light of angels in their glory, announces that the Savior, the light that shines in the darkness, John 1.5, had been born in Bethlehem of Judea. And today, as we consider that truth, I'd like to direct your attention to another birth announcement, another glorious announcement, an announcement of the light of Christ indeed. A darkness-piercing Savior, it's found in Isaiah 9. We will look at it in a moment, but it is, a, it is a rather strange birth announcement coming as it does centuries before Jesus is even conceived. But it is a glorious revelation of who He is. And I think a worthy meditation for us at this time. It is as well a triumphant promise that He will again pierce the darkness we do not as a church strive to make too terribly much of Christmas as such. But it, do, it is an opportunity for us to stop and to remember that we too are waiters and watchers. That there is another advent that is coming, another coming of Christ that's in the future. And as we consider that theme, we do so here in Isaiah in these classic texts of chapter 7 and chapter 9. But I think before we come to chapter 9 in this great birth announcement of the Christ, we must have some historical backdrop. If you'll bear with me a bit, we'll work through this for a little bit, but it's very helpful, I think, to understand this passage. King Ahaz is seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And stacked up directly to the north is the kingdom of Israel, centered at Samaria and referred to as Ephraim here in Isaiah 7. And then to the north of the kingdom of Israel is the Syrian kingdom. Syria with its capital, Damascus, and then to the north and to the east of that is Assyria. And the menacing power of the ruthless king Tiglath-Pileser III. Now Ephraim and Syria, as we come to Isaiah 7, are poised to come in and to conquer Judah. King Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Israel. But God calls Ahaz to trust him. Trust me. Trust me, I will deliver you. Israel to your north and Syria to the north of them, I know that they are po poised to conquer, but they will not conquer. You can trust me, you're safe. And God is so anxious to confirm his word. To tell, he tells Ahaz, ask me anything in heaven or on earth. He gives him a wide open blank slate and says, ask me any sign that you wish and I will prove to you by that sign that I will keep my word. You will not fall to these enemies. Well, Ahaz puffs up his chest and says, I'm not going to put God to the test. That's an evil thing to do. Really, he just doesn't want to trust God. And if God comes with a sign, Ahaz is going to have to deal with the sign, and he'd rather just believe that God isn't even there right now because he's got things all figured out on his own. And he does not want God messing up his plan. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We struggle with that, don't we? But Ahaz has his plan, which is to go further north and to call upon Assyria and to pay them to help him to defeat and to pinch between the two nations. 
Israel to the north and Syria to the north of them. This is what he wants to do. God responds in anger. This king, this Ahaz who will not trust him, who wants to do things his own way, and God gives to Ahaz a sign, chapter 7 and verse 14. God speaks and says, I will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. They're going to get nowhere. And I think there is, in my understanding of the text, a near fulfillment and, of course, a far fulfillment that we understand. But I think there probably was some young woman at this time who was not married and who would bear a child. She was at this moment a virgin. She would bear a child naturally. And this one would, before he came to age, discerning right from wrong and able to eat curds and honey, Israel and Syria would fall to Assyria. God knows this and gives to Ahaz this sign. We know, of course, that there is a further fulfillment. We read it earlier this morning in Matthew chapter 1. The further, from, for, the further fulfillment is Jesus Christ, who is the one conceived truly in the womb of a virgin. But by the time this son in Ahaz's day is born, as I mentioned, these nations will be neutralized. But, God says, don't jump up and down. You want Assyria to help you pinch these two, but what's going to happen is Assyria will conquer those two just as you want it to be, but he's going to keep moving south and conquer you as well. This will be your downfall, your dependence on Assyria. So it's with this promise of a virgin conceiving a child ringing in our ears that we move into chapter 8 and have an assessment now of the spiritual condition of Judah under Ahaz's reign, and indeed probably of all of Israel, at this time, God's people, like their kings, are in a state of thick moral darkness. Despising the light of God's counsel, they've prostituted themselves to heed the foolish counsel of mediums and necromancers, those who are trying to appeal to the dead to gain information. You find that kind of interesting phrase there in verse 19, that they chirp and they mutter and the people who have a living God are going to the dead to try to understand what they should do. This is where they're seeking counsel. It's utter darkness. It reminds us of the darkness of the days of Saul as he goes to the witch of Endor to find a word. Why? Because God is silent. Because for so long Saul has not wanted to hear what God has to say. That's where Israel is here. Rather than turning to God, they run from Him. And then they blame Him for their travails, as is so common with sinners. We all know this pattern too well in our own lives. To not listen to the counsel of God and then to blame Him for the way things turn out. This is where they are. It's at this point that we praise God that we're Christians this point that we praise God that we are believers in the one and true God because it is here 
that the utterly stunning grace of God reveals itself. God promises that this moral gloom will end. The light will dawn again, not because Israel deserves it, but because God is by nature a merciful God who never gives up on His people. Though they should be crushed in their moral darkness, God says, this darkness will end. I will bring in the light to these dark days. It's a stunning grace. And it is in this point, before we even move into the ninth chapter, that we should pause to rejoice and give thanks. We listen as a culture to our own mediums, don't we? There are the mediums of our day. The darkness that is proclaimed, the false hopes of materialism. So many bowing before that throne of idolatry. We face in our day the sensuality of a sex-driven culture. And we find our pleasures there. There is rampant child idolatry and family worship where there should be God worship. We live in a world where the mediums of our day spew out mindless amusement and call us to it. We live in a day of self-worship where the philosophers and the counselors of our day call us to look within, to find in us what is good and right. What we deserve in our darkness is, moral, is, is destruction. What we deserve in this moral darkness is destruction. But God meets us with light. He meets us with unmerited grace and forgiveness in Christ. He meets us in our rebellion by His mercies. We know of this in Christ, but let's back, go back to Isaiah's day as we'll return later to that point. But going back to Isaiah's day, we find evidence of this grace in chapter 9 where a child is born bringing light and ruling. But there will be, writes the prophet, verse 1 of chapter 9, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness. That's these people in these regions have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. If you land, you just plop down in Isaiah chapter 9, you're going, what on earth is all that about? But think of it in light of chapter 8. That's where the darkness is described. There's this moral darkness of no longer hearing the voice of God, doing things our own way, listening to our world, and responding to what's there, but not wanting God's way. In that moral darkness, Israel is found here. And there is gloom on the northern part of Israel. These places don't ring a bell with us as such. I mean, we can find them on a map and we've heard of them before. But to the people of Israel, they hear these places. They know exactly what this is saying. Naphtali is upper Galilee of Jesus' day. Zebulun is lower Galilee of Jesus' day. The way of the sea is probably the western rim of the Sea of Galilee, a region where Jesus spent most of his time. 
The land beyond the Jordan is Transjordan, of course, and the Galilee of the nations. This is the furthest northern reaches of the nation of Israel. And it was here that the armies would come south and enter into the land. It led to the Jezreel Valley where they could march their armies easily into this difficult terrain. It's here that the warrior's boots would often first enter the land. This place became a melting pot. This is why it was called Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles. Hebrews and Canaanites and Aramaeans and Hittites and Mesopotamians lived here. We've heard how Jesus in his ministry was up here and many times was finding uh, safety within the, the mix of cultures there. These regions who were the first to face the attacks of the enemy will be the first to see the light of Messiah. Verse 2, you say, but these are past tenses and Messiah is not here yet. This is what Hebrew scholars would call a prophetic perfects in the Hebrew. That is, the verbs are given as past tense because it's so sure that it will happen. The prophet writes about future events, but does so in the past tense. So we could read it, the people who have walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light will shine. And we are aided to this as we look at Matthew 4. Do you remember that passage? In Matthew 4, it reads, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum by the sea is the way of the sea, described here in Isaiah 9 and verse 1. He lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. The child born of a virgin will come. And the land that has seen the darkness of enemy invasion will see the light of life fulfilled in Jesus Christ during his first advent. There is a second advent of Christ, which is yet future to us. We kind of sit in this, stra this strange place between the two comings of Christ. And much of the text that flows from here will now look at that second coming of Christ, but it will be bound up with ideas that must refer to his first coming. The prophet here not distinguishing those two as we are able to do from our vantage point. But this light will come to this Galilean region in the person of Christ we come to understand. But here he continues, verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, God, as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. The dawning of light will fill Israel with joy, and that joy will be rooted in a relationship with God. You see the three phrases, or the three uses of the word you there in verse 3. You have done this for them. You have increased their joy. They're going to rejoice in you. There will be, in this light, a restoration of fellowship with God. Why do they rejoice in God? Verse 4 is the first of three 
clauses that start with the word for. Notice at verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, his is Israel here, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian. Again, we've heard the phrase, but the place, but what is that? Midian, remember, is a time when Gideon came in with that host of warriors, that vast army arrayed against the Israelites. And Gideon came down with his 300 men, with a very few men came and sent this army off running. With a the, with the few, God uses Gideon to defeat this massive host of Midianites. And it's going to be in that kind of manner that the light shines. The darkness will seem to prevail. It will seem that the enemies of God have the upper hand. But Christ will come. The Messiah will come. And there will be rejoicing that takes place in this restoration of fellowship with God. He will break the yoke that is upon Israel. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The northern regions were the first to feel the warrior's boot, a heavy-duty sandal by our standards, but those days are going to end. The boots are going to be, pull, uh, are going to be brought together in a pile and the uniforms stripped off the dead that have used, been used to soak up the blood of battle, they will be piled up and they will be torched. There will be fires and burning because this equipment won't be needed anymore. And I think it really is a poetic way of saying of what uh, Isaiah said in chapter 2, that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not rise up, will not raise sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk, listen to it, in the light of the Lord. They won't need boots and they won't need uniforms and they're not going to need their, um, uh, their weapons either. What can be burned will be burned and what can be turned into a useful tool will be turned into a useful tool because war will not be needed any longer. This great hope and such a glorious day of freedom from oppression and strife is grounded now in this third phrase, this third four clause, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is the hinge on which it all rests. This glorious day of restoration of fellowship with God, this glorious day of victory over our oppressors, all hinges on this, a child will be born. The child stands in the Hebrew text in an emphatic position. And the connection to chapter 7 and verse 14 is unmistakable. A virgin will give birth to a child. This one we will call Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this one? This child, here he is. A child again is born. And to us a son is given. He's born. This is undeniable, fully authentic humanity. I'd love to talk to Isaiah and say, now from your perspective, tell us how you read this, how you understood this. How is this one born a child? And yet we read that the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is fully human. He is a child who is born of a woman. But the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This one will rule. 
He will rule in such a way that all war will cease, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, in contrast to the folly of Ahaz, who does not want to hear the word of the Lord. This son will give wonderful counsel. Now, when we hear wonderful, read divine. Wonder in the sense of the awesomeness of God. He will give that kind of counsel. He will, to put it in a phrase, speak the truth of God and give faithful counsel as to the application of that truth. And how we can see in this our Savior, our wonderful counselor. Paul wrote in Colossians 2 and verse 3, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ's being are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In who He is, is all knowledge founded. God made, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, Christ Jesus to be our wisdom. Corinthians, so willing to listen to the wisdom of the sophists, of those traveling philosophers who came along and had these ideas to share and really didn't care if they made any sense or not as long as it paid the bills. You're so taken in with their rhetoric and with their sophistry, with their, with their fancy phrases. No, re- understand, Corinthians, Jesus Christ is our wisdom. All the wisdom of this world is founded in Him and grounded in Him. And when we think of Him as our wonderful counselor, I wonder, can we demonstrate by the goals and by the affections of our lives that Jesus is that counselor to us? This is who He is. Do we live in that way? Is the wisdom of Jesus our functional skill for living? Not just in theory, Jesus has all wisdom because he is God, but in practice, I live my life grounded in the person and the being of Jesus Christ, united with him who has become to me my functional wisdom, my mystical wisdom, in every way the the wisdom of my life. If you're not actively inculcating the counsel of Jesus as you suffer, as you succeed, as you advance in this life, as you lay down goals for this life, then you're walking in some degree of moral darkness. As I mentioned, there are the mediums of our age, to to use it in a figurative way, who call us as a people to hear the wisdom of this world, to provide the satisfaction and the wisdom for living. We must set those voices aside. We must tune our ears to what Christ has said, to give ourselves to reading the gospel accounts and what Christ has said and how the New Testament reflects upon what Christ has said and to know that in Him, in my union with Him, there is moral wisdom for life, for all things. We need to come to this light and repentance and to know this, that in His death and in His resurrection life, Jesus is my wisdom. He is the light of my life, the light that shines on the path ahead. All things need to be grounded back into His death and into His resurrection power. I don't have a life outside of Jesus, nor does anyone else. He is our Counselor. He is a mighty God. Again, it's difficult to know how Isaiah would have fully comprehended the implications of one who is born and yet is the mighty God. But this child, this son who's born, as mighty God, the implications are stunning. He is human, yet he is divine. 
And while the Old Testament never fully works the concept out, it certainly does not conflict with the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, the God-man. Jesus is the all-powerful God. We do not need any other source of hope or strength. Indeed, there is no other source of hope or strength or wisdom. He is our all-sufficient, all-powerful God. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. Now, this really doesn't work, does it, with language? How can you be born a son and be the Father? Now, we sang about it, didn't we, today, just in that children's song, Away in a Manger. Speaking to Jesus in prayer, that song says, Bless all the dear children in thy tender care. And I think that's the idea of Jesus as the everlasting Father. Certainly there's eternality that is mentioned here, but I think there is in the idea of Father, one who is provider and protector and nurturer and trainer. Do we come to this season, to this day in loneliness, in need of comfort, in need of identity? We have the one in Jesus Christ who is the everlasting Father, our protector, our provider. He is the Prince of Peace, and on this uh, phrase, I think, lies uh, really hinges the entire passage because it uh, speaks directly to what precedes and is also developed then in what follows, that he is the Prince of Peace. The rule of this prince follows in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is the purpose of this son to rule with justice and righteousness from the throne of David forever. This speaks certainly of the millennial kingdom, I believe in Christ's second advent, where Messiah will rule on the throne of David over his kingdom. There is a sense in which he rules now in that capacity, but there will be a fuller sense during his millennial reign in which he will come. Messiah will be, as Oswald puts it, the king to end all kings. He will rule forevermore. Ahaz, what a moral failure. Short-sighted lack of trust in God. But his reign will end in ruin. Messiah will establish peace and will rule with justice and righteousness on a throne that will never end. And how's that going to be accomplished? There's a lot that Isaiah doesn't understand and much that needs to be worked out, but we do have this phrase, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is it going to be accomplished? Will it be accomplished through political means? Will there be some political hero or some political party or some political means by which we will come to this place of this one ruling? No. Will it be an evolutionary process? Eventually, people will just realize they've got to quit killing each other, and they'll all, with their human wisdom, come to the place of understanding we've got to stop doing this. Will it be some social program that brings it to us? No, it will be the zeal of the Lord. Hear it again. It will be the zeal of this one who sees humanity in our moral darkness, yet meets us with grace and forgiveness, and will come and establish the light here and Jesus will reign, return to reign and sit on David's throne, fulfilling 
the latter half of Psalm 2, the nations rage against him, but there will be a time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, finally and ultimately in fulfillment of such text as this. He will be the prince of peace in that millennial rule. And I think the danger here is sometimes as we hear these things, well, that's eschatology. It's got nothing to do with me. What does it really ultimately matter that Jesus will reign from David's throne eternally? Well, clearly it means something for us in eternity, but I think it means something for us now. And I'd like to focus on that just briefly, just to think of it. The trials of this life are not hopeless, dark horrors if it is the case that Jesus Christ will come and reign. They are simply travails that we must endure until the darkness-piercing Prince of Peace finally conquers, and He will. We have that confidence. He has come, and He will come again. The light of Christ's millennial rule has already dawned. He rules from heaven's throne now, and He will again pierce the darkness in the Father's good time. So we look to His first advent when He first pierced that darkness in that unique way providing light, the light of salvation to those who were in moral darkness. And indeed, walking in the region of Galilee, showing Himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, the One whom God had sent. And now we know Him to be on this side of the cross as those who have trusted in His death to pay the penalty of our sin, for those who have trusted in His resurrection power. And knowing that in that resurrection there is life and hope for us, as we've repented and turned from our sins, we now can say that He is our wonderful Counselor. He is our mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. This One will come again in His second advent to physically rule on earth. And our call then is to persevere to the end and to live in a state of readiness for this light will soon pierce the darkness and will reveal the sons of light. We do live in this culture and in our time where we stand on the timeline of salvation history. We live in the deep midwinter of depravity. It is all around us, this darkness. But there is great hope. There was a day when God called light out of darkness without the sun. And where it is all going to end is a city where there's no sun but full light. The light of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, ruling from heaven's throne. As God comes to earth, as the kingdom is established and handed over to the Father, there is a day when the darkness will be gone and hope will dawn eternal. And all of this is true in the person of Jesus Christ. May we celebrate His first coming. May we look to His second. And may our hearts be tuned to His death, His resurrection, and His reign for all eternity. Let's bow for prayer. There is a name, Father, to which we cling. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for sending him. And Jesus, we rejoice in your presence. We thank you, our Father and our God, for who you are, 
for what you've accomplished. And I pray in behalf of anyone who is yet separated from Christ on the basis of their sin, who is in the moral darkness and headed for judgment. I pray, Father, that in your grace you might meet them in their darkness and allow them to see the light. We pray, God, with earnestness for each one. I pray for each of us who needs to come to repentance today. For each of us is certainly flirting with the message of darkness that is so prevalent in our world. We pray, God, that we might cling to this one Jesus Christ who is our life, who is our light, who is the coming King. We praise you for this Prince of Peace who has given us peace in our hearts. And one day we trust will reign over this earth in peace. As we anticipate that coming in that day, we bow here as your people, and we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Let's sing concerning that name.